Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Regeneration. If this is your first time here, welcome. We have a little gift for you in the back at our Welcome Center, where you can also fill out a Hey card. What you're going to put on that Hey card is your email, and what we're going to do is add you to a list, and you will know what's going on around here. So, here at Regeneration, we are super excited about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we do that is through our check-ins. All of um, the check-ins this month will generate a donation to the Bella Women's Center. So if you get on your Facebooks and you check in and use the hashtag RegenGives, we'll make a donation on your behalf. Two announcements. The first one. There is a feast tonight at the Byler's house. They live in Portland. Their address is right there on the bulletin. So if you don't know where they live, there it is. Please bring something to share with other people. We do this as kind of like a potluck kind of thing, get together, hang out, um, and that's pretty much it. Just a good way to connect with people who you see on Sundays, and maybe you'd like to see them also on Sunday, but at a different time. <laughs> just realized. Uh, and then the second announcement, our summer circles are starting up soon. There are going to be three circles. Circles are just a time where we get together in smaller groups and we have predictable patterns of up, in, and out. These circles are going to look a little bit different. We have a women's Bible study, a Joy Starts Here group, and a men's Bible study. If you want to know more information about those, they're in the bulletin. Um, and there is also the name of someone who you would talk to if you were curious about one of those. So, I think that is all of the announcements. And we are going to take an offering. So, Josh is going to come up and pass these buckets around, I think. Seems reluctant, but that's okay. Um, so, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll do offering and get on with it. Um, Jesus, thank you so much just for this time to be here. Thank you um, for bringing us in this room. Thank you for um, removing whatever obstacles may have been in the way um, between you and us this morning. And we just ask that you would continue um, to just, just remove any blocks between us. Um, we ask that you would open our ears for what you have to say. Amen. Uh, we are here to minister to the Lord's heart. Our first responsibility this morning is to bless the Father's heart, to minister to Him. It's really easy to walk into worship needing something, and some of you do, and that's great. But if you've come in this morning, with your fork ready to feed off the buffet of whatever we've planned for you, you're approaching the Lord in the wrong posture. So I want us to do that. We give you the highest praise a couple more times so we can get in the heart of blessing the Lord and ministering to him. Father, we name your worthiness today. We name your praiseworthiness. You are worthy of our time and our attention and our affection this morning after we have given our hearts to lesser kings and lesser gods, we offer ourselves to you. 
And so send your Holy Spirit that we might hear from you and see you in the midst of this thing that we are in. And Holy Spirit, would you be the spotlight that points to Jesus this morning, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection together in this place. Be blessed today, Father, by by what we do. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Kids can go back with Kayla. Uh, Something I said last week that I I just want to repeat. By the way, my name's Kyle. I get to be the pastor here. So if we've not met, welcome. Um, uh, Last week, I I mentioned that uh, Dan and Rebecca Stewart, Rebecca is our site coordinator. She will be um, and, and Dan will be taking a couple weeks off so they can handle moving into a new home and all that kind of stuff, four weeks off. And uh, Randy and Jairus Banning will be taking over site coordinator stuff. And so there's a team that arrives by about 10.30, 10.40. They pray together. And then there's some setup that goes into making our space look like our space. And then there's some work after a lot of us leave. Um, if you can help on that team, if you can help on that hospitality team, please talk to Randy and Jairus. Um, even one of these four Sundays would just be awesome. We are actively praying for, we had a prayer night on Thursday night, we are actively praying for more servants, more leaders who answer the Father's call to partner in his purposes. And uh, so we're praying that maybe even the work that we did on Thursday night would bear some fruit this morning. Um, I'm going to preach, then I'm going to say amen, and I will be here no longer. My cousin Daniel is graduating from Lakeview at 1 p.m., so we're going to do a mad dash across the lake and see if we can drop our son off at somebody that was willing to watch him and get there in time. So we'll see how that goes. Um, So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel 4. Yeah, it's there. I got it. I think I've been given control. Let's see. Yes. Cool. All things in heaven and earth. Yeah. First Samuel chapter 4. Uh, this fall will mark 18 years since the attacks uh, in New York and in, at the Pentagon and on September 11th, 2001. In some generations, you ask, Where were you when the president was shot? In my generation, you ask, where were you when you heard the towers fell? The Sunday after September 11 saw a massive bump in church attendance across the nation. Almost every church in the country had a few extra people that Sunday. A few megachurches jumped from, you know, the single-digit thousands to the double-digit thousands. People were trying to find comfort and peace to get a sense of the tragedy that had befallen us. And some Christian leaders, and not a few Christians, believed that the sudden influx of folks into church was a revival. And suddenly there were bumper stickers and billboards and television commercials and country songs all declaring the same message, God bless the USA. Some estimates say that on the Sunday following the terror attacks, roughly half the adult population in the United States was in a religious service. Weeks passed, and then years, 
And a decade and a half later, we have come to face the reality that the sudden wave of church attendance in the wake of September 11th was just that. It was just a wave. Waves roll in and they roll back out. There was no lasting fruit from that experience, or very little at least. Why is it that we move toward God in times of crisis and move away when the crisis is over? That is the question that 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 1 Samuel chapter 7, that's right, we're preaching four chapters today, so we'll be here. Good news, I have a graduation, otherwise we'd be here till 2, you know what I mean? That's what it wants to answer. But let's do a review, because some of you are just jumping in. And this, in, in this series, in all series, I would encourage you to go back and listen to our SoundCloud, where our sermons are available on podcasts. But as we're teaching through a book, there's a lot of things going on that uh, I would encourage you to kind of keep up on when you're not here, because we're traveling a lot for the summer. I get that. The book of 1 Samuel has three, 1 and 2 Samuel have three themes that kind of work their way through in this series that we're calling King of Hearts, this story about how God is rejected as the king of his people's hearts, how he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, how through it all he is bringing about his purposes, most especially bringing about a king after his own heart in his land. There's these three themes that we see over and over again. One of them is intervention and reversal. This We'll see this today, that at any given moment, God can intervene in the lives of his people and reverse their circumstances for good or for bad. Another thing that we'll see is humility and pride, that God looks on the inward parts of a person. He is not impressed by your outward behavior. He looks on the inside to oppose the proud and exalt the humble. Also this theme of Messiah's kingdom, that there will be a chosen anointed one, Jesus, who will come and reign and rule in righteousness forever. We're looking at chapter 4 through chapter 7. That's a pretty long chunk of text. That's one narrative. It's one story. The verses and chapters in your Bible are not original. I don't know if you know this. And that's why we're not just preaching, say, 1 Samuel chapter 4 or 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, and 7 are telling one unified story. The chapters in your Bible were added in the 13th century, and the verses in your Bible were added in the 15th century. And the guy that was adding the verses to his edition of the Bible did some of it on horseback, which is why you will have, like, in the middle of a sentence, like, three, like, you'll have, like, a verse break, right? Or a chapter break, um, And then other times you'll have like two sentences that count as one verse. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. We want to follow narrative arcs. We want to follow the story. And in this one long narrative, the author is making another case for for Samuel's leadership in Israel. Chapters 4 through 6 are marked by a kind of chaos that we've not seen since the period of the Judges. In fact, it lasts 20 years, just like those periods last in the book of Judges. But in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel steps in to bring order to that chaos and the enemies that cause it. And this builds a case that Samuel is God's chosen leader, which is the entire case of 1 Samuel 1 through 7. There are a few other notes uh, that I want to kind of give you in these, in these chapters and what we're looking at today that I think are important to notice. Um, let me nerd out for a second. First of all, it's important to always pay attention in narrative, especially Old Testament narrative, to the dialogue. Who is speaking? Who is the dialogue assigned to? How long is that particular dialogue? If you pay close attention, most of the dialogue in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, especially chapters 5 and 6, the dialogue is assigned to nameless characters, and the Lord has no dialogue whatsoever. It's interesting. 
It's also interesting that the main characters of the story are not people. That which moves the plot forward are not people. It is not Samuel. It is not Eli. It is not Hophni. That, that which moves the plot forward is the Ark of the Covenant and the hand of the Lord. The word hand is used 13 times in these chapters, more than half of them to refer to the hand of the Lord. The main characters are the Ark and the hand. Lastly, I don't want you to miss this whole piece. Three times in the text, the word heavy will be used. Three times the word glory will be used. These two words are based on the same Hebrew words. So heavy is kavod and glory is kavod. And this back and forth between kavod and kavod and the hand of the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant, this is what drives the plot forward. We pay attention to these things in Old Testament narrative because the Old Testament practices artistic and literary reticence. It doesn't come out and just tell us what it's thinking. Instead, the author of the Hebrew narrative drops in the hints throughout to help us understand the story and to help us understand the God who writes it. And the thing I would point out to you is Kyle does not come to this information because he is smarter than the average bear. Uh, Kyle comes to this information because he's stupider than the average bear. So this is a printed copy that I made of the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, the verses are in here. They're a little further apart. There's large margins. How did Kyle figure out these things? Kyle figured them out by reading them over and over again and then putting his notes in. So Kyle's reading it and starts to notice the word hand is used a lot. Kyle's reading it starts to notice the word heavy is used a lot. Kyle's reading it starts to notice the word glory is used a lot. You can do this. I mean, I'm still happy to do it with you, but like, you know, you can do this. You don't need a Bible degree. So let's look at chapter 4 together and get a sense of what the problem is. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. It's really kind of a bottom, that first line is really part of the story above it. But then it says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up against, drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, the last few chapters have established that Hophni and Phinehas are bad dudes. So when we read their name, you should hear somebody in the background going like, boo, to Hophni and Phinehas. The drums of war are beating in Israel, and as the people of God encamp at Ebenezer and prepare for battle against the Philistines, they are up against a significant enemy. The Philistines are unlike any military power that Israel has faced to this point. They are more technologically advanced. They are not just some nomadic tribe that happens to be passing through. Instead, the Philistines have dominion on their minds. Already they have set up five fortified cities in the southern part, the southern coast of Gaza. They want more land. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they have come to gather for war to get it. And so they go to war. Their first clash causes 4,000 Israelites to lose their life. By the end of the sermon, 84,000 people will be dead. They lose their lives, and in their desperation, they say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? 
Why has the Lord defeated us? In their desperation, they hatch a desperate plan. They say, let us bring, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The operative word in that sentence is it. That it may come among us. What is the Ark of the Covenant? You remember the Ark of the Covenant from watching Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Turns everybody into some really classic 80s special effect, melted putty stuff, eyeballs fall out. The Ark of the Covenant is a special object given to God's people. At Mount Sinai, in the book of Exodus, God gives Israel instructions for a tabernacle, a portable worship space. And part of these instructions include a golden box, about three feet by two feet by two feet. It is placed at the very center of the tabernacle in what is called the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest was permitted to look upon the ark. No one was permitted to touch it. No one was permitted to look inside of it. Please remember that detail for later. And when the ark traveled, they put these poles into the side of it, carried it on their shoulders, but it was covered by a veil, so no one could see it. And you'll notice in chapter 4, it says, they, got, they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned upon the cherubim. If you look right here, this is actually pretty cool because I think I can zoom it. Those are your cherubim. Those are a kind of angelic being that uh, Psalm 99.1 says, he says he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Psalm 99 says this, the Ark, what is the Ark? The Ark is the tangible expression of, of God's presence among his people. It is the footstool of his throne. The cherubim uphold his throne. He sits on it, so that is, his, that is the footstool. The Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of his throne. It is the tangible expression of God's glory and God's presence in Israel. And the problem in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is this, that God's people treat this object which is a tangible expression of God's glory. They treat this object in a way that extends to God. They treat it as a tool or a good luck charm or a magical device that will guarantee their victory. And in mistreating the ark, they mistreat the Lord. Not to go too deep into this, but I just want to stop and say that as new covenant people, we have no holy objects that mediate to us the presence of Jesus. Some churches would call this an altar I call it a table. Uh, if you think that this table has some magical spiritual power like built into it, you belong at the Catholic Church down the street. I'll let you know what time their worship services are. In the New Covenant, objects do not have, like, mediate the presence of God. People do. People do. In mistreating the ark, they mistreat the Lord. And this has disastrous results because they are dealing lightly with God's glory. So as 1 Samuel goes on to report, the repercussions for their almost superstitious thinking are as follows. First, when they go to battle with the ark, 30,000 more Israelites die. Second, and this is disastrous, the ark of the covenant is taken. Third, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, boo, they meet their end. Yay, right? Fourth, 
Their father, Eli, dies when a survivor from the battle runs up and says, Hophni and Phinehas are dead and the ark has been taken. And the text says that Eli falls off of his chair and breaks his neck. That is both literal and metaphorical and symbolic, right? He literally dies, but symbolically, he has fallen off the throne of spiritual leadership in Israel. He's lost his authority. His house is done, which is what Samuel prophesied would happen. Finally, Phinehas' wife goes into premature labor when she hears the ark has gone her husband dead, and she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And she says the glory has, de- the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. I want to be super clear about the problem. By treating the ark with a heart of superstition, by relying on an it instead of a he, Israel treated the Lord's glory lightly. They used God as an object, as a magical device. And this is a massive failure on Israel's part. It's a massive failure. The ark is carried away into Philistine territory. The tabernacle at Shiloh is destroyed. They will never worship at Shiloh again. And what happens next is super-duper interesting. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. In the ancient Near East, the people of the ancient Near East, they believed that any battle actually took place on two planes, not just one. So any conflict that was being played out was being played out in an earthly realm and a heavenly realm. In an earthly realm and a heavenly realm. So the Philistines, they leave the field of battle, they leave with the Ark of the Covenant in hand, and they believe they have won military victory over Israel because their god, Dagon, has won victory over Israel's god. And having lost this battle, Israel will now be forced into a position of servitude to the Philistines. And if the Israelites are going to serve the Philistines, it only makes sense that Israel's God would serve the Philistines' God. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. By the way, there's the god Dagon. We'll talk about more in a second. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, this is chapter 5, verse 1, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in place. Guys, it's good that when our God falls down, we don't need to go find him and pick him back up again. Verse 4, but when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the household of Dagon and Ashdod. To this day, things don't go as they thought they would as they bring this ark to Ashdod. When they put their idol back, The next morning they find it face down, its head cut off, and its hands cut off. Listen, there is a problem when a false god, and without getting too much into this, there's a problem when a false god who has a spiritual referent in the heavenly realms. There is a problem when a false god understands the Ark of the the Covenant better than God's people do. There is a problem when a false god is worshiping rightly and Israel's people and the people of Israel are not. We have a problem. The Philistines find that possessing the ark is a little bit more than they bargained for. They are plagued with tumors and hemorrhoids and even worse things. So in chapter 5, verse 11, they say, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. Do you notice how they're calling it an it again? For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God 
was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And in their desperation, the Philistines consult with their own diviners and magicians to find a way to end this terror. This, by the way, all has images of the Exodus. This is similar to what happened in the Exodus. So look, we're going to fast forward now to chapter 6. Starting in verse 3, they say, If you send the ark of God away, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and all your lords. Verse 5, so you must make images of your tumors, I mean gross, and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off you and your gods and your land. They make mice because mice are plaguing the land. That's probably where the plague came from on some level. And then they have tumors and hemorrhoids. I had a picture of a golden hemorrhoid. And uh, I showed it to somebody this week. I did. I found it online and I showed it to somebody this week. And it looked like a male part, looked like a boy part. So we decided to exclude that from the slideshow. I said, does this look like a tumor or something else? And Zach, Zach by the way, was like, oh yeah, something else. I didn't even like, you know. So they make these tumors and these mice and they put it on, an, on, a, on a cart and they send it back because the Philistines are discovering the heavy cost we pay when we treat the glory of the Lord lightly. And this part of the story is built in. It's sandwiched in right into the middle. You've got Israel with the ark. You've got this story of the Philippines in 5 and 6 and then back to Israel. This story is built in right into the middle to show how when God's people treat God's glory lightly, they are little better than their pagan neighbors. What, is, what we're seeing in 4, 5, 6, and 7 is that Israel and the pagan Philistines really aren't all that different in the way that they treat the Lord. And Christians love, Christians love to get intense and want to make the culture be more Christian. Our biggest problem is not making our culture more Christian. Our biggest problem is getting Christians to be the holy people that we are called to be. And that is the problem here in 1 Samuel, is that they are treating God's glory lightly, both Israel and the Philistines. They are little better than the pagan nations around them. And this is proven as the story goes on in chapter 6, because the Philistines send the ark back to Israel. They take two cows, they put it on a cart, they put the golden tumors and the mice on the cart, and they send it back, and it ends up in a town called Beth Shemesh. And when it gets there, the Israelites just act like idiots. They look at the ark, that's a no-no. They touch the ark, that's a no-no. And some fool opens up the ark and is like, what's in here, guys? (laughs) And look at what happens in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, maybe. Oh yeah, don't miss this back here. Do you see the interplay? The hand of God was very heavy. Give glory to the Lord and his hand will be light. The hand was kavod. If you give kavod, the hand will be light. So chapter 6 verse 19 says, but the Lord, so they, they look in this and the text says, the Lord killed 70 men from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord and the people mourned greatly because of what the Lord had done. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, they cried out. Josephus, who was one of the first translators of the Bible into common language, wimped out 
the original manuscripts of the text do not say that 70 men died. It says that 50,000 men died in Beth Shemesh. 50,000 people died for looking at the ark and touching the ark and looking into it. And if you're keeping track, that is 80,000 deaths plus four. Phineas, Eli, Hophni, and Phineas's wife. This is the price we pay for treating the glory of the Lord lightly. This is the price they pay. When we treat the glory of the Lord, which, by the way, is literally the weight of his presence. When you're in a moment of worship, like we were in a little bit ago, and you get a sense that something is happening in the room, that there is an other that is joining in with us, that is God's glory descending to dwell in a place. It is the weight of his presence. When we treat the weight of his presence, his glory lightly, when we act in pride, that pride will always, always, always be opposed by God. But God gives his grace to his people in chapter 7 because Samuel steps into the chaos after 20 years. It says this, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the Asherah, false gods, and they serve the Lord only. This is why 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, and 7 are one story. Because the victory that they sought in chapter 4 isn't found until 20 years and three chapters go by. The victory that they sought in chapter 4 isn't found for 20 years and three chapters. And instead of using the ark to their own advantage, to their own ends, as a totem or a good luck charm, what they do is they submit their hearts to the Lord. Their victory is found in their surrender. Their victory is found in their surrender. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The victory they sought comes when they surrender themselves to the Lord. The end of chapter 7 says that the Philistines are subdued to a point that they do not harass Israel for the rest of Samuel's lifetime. And when King David comes, he wipes them out. One commentator says, in chronicling the events of this section, the narrator is careful to indicate that mighty deliverance from the Philistines came about only after Israel repented and turned wholeheartedly back to God. The movement of Israel's heart, not Yahweh's ark, brought about true freedom. The movement of Israel's heart. Here's what we're seeing in this text. When we use God to our own ends, Instead of surrendering to him our hearts, we treat the glory of the Lord lightly and we never actually know him. When we use God to our own ends, instead of surrendering to him our hearts, we treat the glory of the Lord lightly and we never actually know him. People came flooding into church the Sunday after September 11th because they were afraid and in their distress, they needed some help. They needed some help just like Israel did on the field of battle against the Philistines. And like Israel, that September 11th, people came running to God, not with open hearts to submit to him and know him and walk with him. Instead, they came with a desperate need to use God to make their fear go away. And eventually it did. Eventually the fear went away. The chaos went away, and so did the churchgoers. 
The revival never came because it was never about knowing God personally. It was about using God to make them feel more safe, more secure, and less out of control. There is a vast difference between using God to our own ends and humbly submitting ourselves to walk with him with hearts open to his voice and his leading. And as a pastor, I see this all the time. People come to church after a crisis because they need something from God. They want to use him to make them feel better like Novocaine. I see it frequently even in lifelong churchgoers who use the rituals and trappings of church as if they had magic powers to keep them safe and comfortable. And there may be some in in the early stages, some excitement and some passion about spiritual things and enjoyment of worship, that thrill, that feeling, but eventually these folks often disappear because they tried to use God to make them feel safer or more in control to make the pain go away and it didn't happen, so they walk away in disappointment and regret because it was never about knowing God. It was about using God as a means to another end. We are, we are, we are, we are very quick to use God to our own ends. To approach God as an it instead of a he. To approach God as an it instead of an e. We aren't quick to pray until we need something. And then we send out prayer chains and Facebook posts asking for good vibes and thoughts and prayers. We think of prayer like we think of a fire extinguisher in case of emergency break glass. We think of prayer as if the more people we can get to join in the cultic ritual, the more likely we are that God will do something. But as soon as the emergency passes, we put the fire extinguisher back. We don't like God. We don't like God when he challenges our thinking on marriage or abortion or immigration or refugees but we're fine with using God when we need him. When we need him to give us what we want. We are happy to live a life that is, in effect, in no way particularly Christian, but we have made a deal with God. I will be there every week. I will even throw some money into the bucket as it goes by, and in exchange, God, you will keep me safe and comfortable and happy. It's not about knowing God. It's about getting to comfort and happiness and using God to get there. We want to, we are happy to live a life, we are happy to live a life marked by selfishness and greed and comfort, but since we went to Hobby Lobby and we bought a sign that says blessed and put it up in our house, we're fine. (laughs) We are very quick to use God to our own ends, and do you notice in the undertone of this passage the superstition that unlies it, that underpins it? There is a superstition with which Israel approaches God. They approach God as an it instead of a he in some sort of weird Harry Potter adjacent universe. Let us find the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get the goblet of fire and then our problems will go away. Where's the sword of Godric Gryffindor? Where is the Ark of the Covenant? We use prayers and creeds as if they had magic powers to save or to transform People ask me to baptize or dedicate their baby as if that imparts on them some sort of magical protection. People tell me I need to get my kids to take communion at least once or twice a year because they need that soul cleansing. People say, God must be punishing me for something I did wrong. I don't know what. People say, be careful what you pray for. 
because you just might get it. God is not God of the universe. Our Yahweh is not the trickster God Loki, nor a God, a God from the Greek pantheon who gives us exactly what we want in a way that is actually terrible. That's not how it works. And to be clear about something, I am not the Ark of the Covenant. I, as the person with pastor in front of his name, do not bear more of the presence of God or have a stronger connection to God just by virtue of my title. I know this to be true because I know a lot of people with pastor in their title and I have some concerns. <laughs> I say this is true also because there are people in our community that bear the presence of the Holy Spirit into a room with more effectiveness and more grace than I do because they are older or wiser or more mature than I am and they have been obedient in ways that I have not. If you think I need to come to the hospital room or I need to pray for something for it to really happen, I will again invite you to attend the Catholic Church down the street. I am not your priest. I am not your access to God. I am one planted among you to point you to Jesus. But I am with you. I am not over you. We are very quick to use God to our own ends. We are very quick to approach God as an it instead of a he. And when we use God to our own ends, instead of surrendering him our heart, to him our heart, we treat the glory of the Lord lightly. And in the process, we never actually know him, which is exactly why, I'll throw this out, I didn't say this at the last campus, there's a story in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And some of you will say to me, Lord, did we not cast out demons and perform many miracles in your name? And I will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. It's because we surrounded ourselves with the trappings of spirituality. We saw some things, we experienced some things, but we never actually gave our hearts to him. And if we know anything in the books of Samuel, he is, above all things, trying to be the king of our hearts. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you are good to us, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you uh, walk with us in our weakness with understanding and grace. Uh, we trust you, Father, with our hearts and our lives today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next time. We are in a super interesting season as a church right now where we are kind of like stripping down the way that we do church um, and really trying to get at the heart of like, why are we here? Um, and I, I think one of the ways that we are trying to faithfully steward the presence of the Lord is to stop and listen um, to what he is saying. We don't just want to know things about God. We want to know God. Um, and one of the ways that we do that is um, through revelation and response. So on the back of your program, there are two big spaces. One of them says, what is God saying? And the other one says, what am I going to do about it? Um, we're super good in America as a church culture generally. Um, we are super good at the first part, 
what is God saying? We like coming to church. We like hearing things. We like um, the warm, tingly feelings. There's a lot of us in this community that are kind of pressing into hearing from God in different ways. Um, but all of that is meaningless if we don't do anything about it. So um, we're just going to take a few minutes and um, just listen and say, like, God, what are you saying? And then the second half is, what are we going to do about it? Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to know you and not just know about you. We thank you um, for this space and for your presence um, here among us. We thank you for speaking to us. Um, we thank you for grace um, and getting it wrong. We thank you for um, just your love. We thank you for um, this place where we can come and we can hear about you. We thank you for the ability um, to respond to what you're saying. We're going to take communion now. So I'm going to need some people to come up in a minute. Um, on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Jesus has given us um, his body. He has dwelt among us, and this is a physical reminder of that. Then he took the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, thank you for these gifts. Thank you for your presence that dwells among us. Amen. Hey, Joey, can you close us in prayer? Thank you so much for meeting us here today. Thank you so much for the all-fulfilling gift that you are to us. Thank you that all of the seeking and striving that we have in our life, God, it all ends at you. Look no further because you're our prize, your desire, your fulfillment. You're the very one that we were designed for. You yourself fulfill us in every way. Thank you so much for you, God. I just pray um, that this week and our days and our moments, um, as we meet lack, as we meet hunger, as we meet need, that we would find your nearness and we would find fulfillment in you because you are so present and you are so available. 